Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back just over a week to our February 2024 in-person program with Senator Rand Paul for a discussion on his latest book, Deception, The Great COVID Cover-Up. A physician himself, Senator Rand Paul was one of the few leaders who dared to challenge what America was being told about COVID. In Deception, Senator Paul presents evidence that COVID was likely started by research at the Wuhan lab in China, research funded in part by the U.S. government without regulatory review. Senator Paul makes the case of why we shouldn't fund dangerous bioengineering in a totalitarian country, and how if we don't heed this warning, the next pandemic could be worse. While at the Reagan Library, Senator Paul was joined in conversation by Reagan Foundation and Institute President and CEO David Trulio. Let's listen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a great crowd. It's exciting to be here. I am happy to also have my wife with me of 33 years and the co-author, Kelly Paul. So you'd think after we've been married for 33 years, you know, I go to Washington on Monday, I'm coming home at the end of the week, you'd think she'd greet me at the door with a hug and a kiss, maybe a martini. But you know what I get when I come home from Washington? She opens the door and you know what I get? How come Anthony Fauci's not in jail yet? That'd be fine if it were just one week, but it's every week I come up. <laughs> but look, it's not for lack of trying. I've referred him to the Department of Justice. You will recall that uh, President Biden runs the Department of Justice. Merrick Garland doesn't appear to be the most objective of attorneys general. But the thing is, is that we have in very detailed fashion sent a referral, a criminal referral for him to be prosecuted for lying to Congress. And it's not me accusing him of lying, it's himself accusing himself of lying. We have through Freedom of Information emails where he admits that what he said to the general public, what he said to everybody in the committee hearing was a lie. That he was funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan without question because he says so in his own words, in his own emails. And yet it's been ignored. And as more evidence comes out, I submitted another referral and it's been ignored. We're lucky to get a form letter back from Merrick Garland. This is a real problem. You will recall there have been a few of the Trump officials who were prosecuted. Roger Stone, Peter Navarro still awaits. They're talking about putting him in jail even while his appeal takes place for, for not obeying a subpoena. You know, there is, who's that other guy that hasn't been obeying his way? Oh, Hunter Biden, you think he's going to jail while he's waiting trial? No, this is the thing, and it, it, it really is one of the, the most serious and significant problems that is occurring right now is this idea that there's two standards of justice. You know, it about tore our country apart back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the idea that there wasn't equal protection under the law, that people were judged according to the color of their skin, and they weren't judged impartially. We've gotten beyond of that, a lot of that. Every decade has gotten better about treating people according to themselves as individuals. But the problem now is not so much the color of the skin, but the shade of your ideology. If you're a Republican, if you're a Trump supporter, if you're pro-life, if you're pro-Constitution, or God forbid, you teach your children at home, or you don't want to vaccinate your kids, somehow there's a different series of justice for the rest of us. And this is a real problem. And I think it will lead to strife in our country as it gets worse. The, the whole ludicrousy of all the lawsuits from now, you know, trying to destroy Trump through lawsuits. No matter what your opinion of Donald Trump is, 
it shows this idea that the, the whole uh, legal system is being used and misused to go after a political opponent. It makes us look like a third world country. I mean, it's, it's despicable, but it's also worrisome that I meet people every day who think that the, they really won't be treated fairly, that people are being targeted. We know that the NSA looked at 17,000 donors of one particular candidate, and that candidate was not a Democrat. So we know the powers of government are being used against us. I've simply asked for records about COVID. So we had a vote. We voted unanimously, the Senate and the House, to declassify all records. But it didn't help, because most of the records I'm requesting aren't even classified to begin with. And what do we get? Zero. We get nothing but resistance. So the cover-up begins in early 2020 in our country, but it begins even earlier than that in China. It happens in the fall of 2019. And we know this now through a couple of heroic individuals that began to bring this forward so we would know about it. First in China, there was a young ophthalmologist. His name was Li Wen Liang. He was 33 years old. In the first weeks of the virus, he was seeing people coming to the emergency room with pneumonia of unknown origin. In China, they know about this because they had it in 2002, 2003. It was the first SARS epidemic. SARS is a severe acute respiratory syndrome, but it was from a coronavirus. This was the original coronavirus infections. They know about it. So it wasn't a surprise when they see these things. He, he simply sent it off an email to a chain of other doctors in the community to warn them that he thought there was another epidemic occurring. And the way he was treated in China was he was arrested. He was arrested for spreading gossip. He was arrested for spreading social discord and spreading misinformation just by communicating with a group of doctors to warn them that this was coming. Now, he was finally released after he signed a written confession, confessing that he had you know, been improper to the state reminiscent of what they did in Mao's time. This is what we're, they're headed towards in China. And you say, well, gosh, that's terrible. And China's this terrible totalitarian country. But guess what? There are people that want to emulate China. In the early stages, as they were welding people into their houses, in the early stages, as you know, they were using this medieval clampdown in China, there were people in our country saying, oh, gosh, I wish, you know, I wish we could do it the way the Chinese do it. There were people in our country saying, yeah, we should do it if we, gosh, if we just didn't have that Bill of Rights problem. <laughs> Seriously. Anthony Fauci, in the first weeks of the lockdown in China, was admiringly, admiringly saying, well, it bought us some time. But in China, people were being beaten with clubs and sticks if they, were, if they were, had the audacity to leave their apartments. People were being locked inside their apartments for weeks on end. You'd see them in the high-rise buildings in China. You'd see them coming out on their balcony trying to get fresh air. And the Chinese were alarmed even at the people coming out on their balconies. The Chinese were sending drones up in the air. And they had the soothing words of a woman's voice saying, resist your soul's desire to be free. How eerie is that? And the thing is, you say, well, this is, that's just China. That's not us. But they were condemning misinformation. The young ophthalmologist was arrested for putting out what they were saying was misinformation. This has become the watchword of the left in our country. They're trying to control speech in our country. If you're a physician in California, and you simply say that I agree with the policy in 15 European countries that we shouldn't give COVID vaccines to children, because there's no evidence that there's any benefit, you can have your license taken away. They will report you. You will be sent to the authorities. Misinformation is the watchword now of the left. I know, because I've been censored. Because I said a couple of times that masks don't work, and they don't. <laughs> but if you say that, you're taken down. For a year and a half, Anybody that had the audacity to indicate that maybe the virus originated in a lab in Wuhan, for a year and a half, Facebook degraded those messages, took them down, censored those, those messages. And you say to yourself, well, Facebook's a private company. 
But guess what? The Constitution doesn't allow the FBI and Homeland Security to meet with Facebook, Twitter, and all these tech companies to take your messages down. So I've introduced legislation. So far, I have no Democrat co-sponsor, and I've talked to most of the halfway reasonable ones, which is like two in the Senate. <laughs> and they, they're worried. Here's what one of them responded to me, and I won't, I won't reveal his name, but I'm talking to this Democrat, and I say, well, yeah, shouldn't we just prevent the government from getting involved in constitutionally protected speech? How hard can that be? And he said, well, there are certain things we have to police. What if someone goes online and says the election is not on Tuesday in November this year, the first Tuesday after the first Monday? What if, what if someone says it's on Wednesday? And my thought, I didn't say this, would be, well, maybe if they're dumb enough to think that the election was changed by somebody online, maybe they shouldn't vote. But... <laughs> but I didn't say that because I'm too nice a guy to say that. But I can't get anybody to sign on, and all it is is to say the government shouldn't be involved. Doesn't say Twitter can't take you down. Actually, the First Amendment allows private companies to do what they want. But nothing about the First Amendment says the government should be involved with coercing. So when I do a television interview, and we have cameras in here, if I'm talking, the reporter interviews me, I say, how would you feel if when you were done with this interview, the FBI knocked on your door and you had to sit down with them each week, and they watched the interview to see what I was saying was appropriate and what was inappropriate, and they screened it. And the reporters are horrified. I said, well, that's what your government's doing now. That's what your government's doing now to Twitter before Elon Musk came along. Thank God for Elon Musk. As people were dying right and left in China, and none of this was recorded. You know China has like zero deaths recorded or something. Tens of thousands, of not, if not millions, a million people died in our country. Some with COVID, some from COVID, but a lot of people died, and I don't deny that. In China, that means a bigger country, three times our size, several million people died, but they don't record any of that. But as Li Wenlang, the ophthalmologist, died, he was 33 years old. When you live in a totalitarian country, you know what? People suspect maybe the government's not telling you the truth, which is a good suspicion. He was 33 when he died. Do you know what the death rate for a 33-year-old is? It's about four in 10,000. So for every 10,000 infections, four people will die at the age of 33. It's very, very rare, and yet he died. And yet many people in China got on Weibo, which is their email sort of uh, grouping, and they were like, hmm, kind of suspicious that you announced this at three in the morning. Kind of suspicious his death was. Look at Russia. Alexei Navalny died, you know, supposedly natural causes, but his body's not being released to his family. So there is this worry. But as this was going on in China, there was a scientist by the name of Zengli Shi, Dr. Shi, the bat woman, the most famous coronavirus in the world, coronavirus researcher in the world. You can imagine as people were dropping like flies that, you know, she might have been sweating a bit. She actually admits in some interviews that she didn't sleep well, worrying that this could have come from her lab. Now, she never says it did come from her lab, but the fact that she's not sleeping well and she worries means there was a real chance that it came from her lab. Do you think she probably would tell us the truth that it came from her lab? No, because errors in China can be terminal. Now, we also know that at the time this was going on, there was a guy named General Zhou Yusin. And over there, you can be both scientists and generals and often are at the same time. We know that they were working on a, on a vaccine. It's called a pan-coronavirus. Pan means everything. So they wanted to get a vaccine that would work for all coronaviruses. But the problem is a lot of coronaviruses and a lot of animal viruses aren't very contagious to humans which is kind of lucky, actually. But the way evolution works is viruses mutate to inhabit a host. And so if their host is the animal, they are adapted to transmit between animals but not humans very well. This is good because like the avian flu, if you've ever read how the, sometimes the Chinese will call a million chickens or 10 million chickens because they've got avian flu. 
It kills 50% of the people it infects, but it rarely infects people because it's just not very contagious. This is the, the problem with coronavirus. If you want to develop a vaccine, it doesn't infect humans very well until we got COVID. The one in the virus from 2002, 2003 actually wasn't very infectious. It was 10% deadly, but you, didn't catch, you couldn't catch it very easily because it was adapted for bats or for civets or for an intermediate host. So what we think happened, and there's a great deal of evidence this happened, is that they were working on a vaccine. This General Usen actually gets a patent for a vaccine February 26th of 2020. If you backdate the times and you think that they find COVID when they say they did about January 1st, it's not enough time. It would have taken another month or two to develop a vaccine. So we know they were dishonest about this. But what we think happened is Dr. Xi created the virus and she had to make it more dangerous. She had to make it infect humans more. How do you do that? You insert something into it. It's called a cleavage site. It's called a furin cleavage site. So they inserted it in there because they needed to make it more contagious because they're trying to create a vaccine. The problem is, is it gets out at some point. We know that three of her researchers, in fact, we think we know who the first person in the world to get COVID-19 was. Ben Hugh was his name. He's one of the leading researchers uh, probably second from Dr. Xi in the lab. Two of the other researchers that worked there too got sick. We know this because the Trump administration revealed it in January of 2020 as they were, 21 as they were leaving office. So we know this is happening. We know that they're making it more dangerous. General Yusin gets the patent for the vaccine in February 26 of 2020. He mysteriously dies two months later. He either fell or jumped from a tall building in Beijing. You decide, accident on purpose. As this is going on in China, that the cover-up has begun in China. We also have information when they look at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that there's a week, I believe in October of 2019, where there's no cell phones. See, tonight the NSA knows you're all here because they're pinging your cell phone in the cell phone tower. So they can look back at data, and a lot of this data is public, and they look at the lab and all of a sudden there's usually 100 cell phones in the lab, then there's no cell phones. And so they think they were cleaning up. They think something happened, they discovered it happened, and they're, they're cleaning up. We also know that Dr. Xi took down the, the online database. She had an online database for you know, hundreds of these coronaviruses. And then other people say, well, you're trying to decide whether it came from animals or Wuhan. Well, Wuhan has the largest repository of coronaviruses. It's just a coincidence that all the research is going on there. We have hundreds of coronaviruses there, and an epidemic of the coronavirus starts there, but really it came accidentally from animals. So there's so much adding up towards this. There's so much information, and yet the Chinese are completely denying this. The Chinese in January, like 20-something of 2020, months into this, even three or four weeks after they know it's going on, after they're having people dying right and left, the Chinese are saying, we don't think it's transmissible between humans. Completely crazy. We have some dissidents from China who were reporting in November, in October of 2019, that people were dying all throughout Wuhan. So the beginning, the original cover-up was in China. And you think, well, once again, it's a totalitarian country. They're going to cover it up, right? but you would think our government would be a little better. But the cover-up in our country began at 6.24, 6.24 in the evening on January 27th, 2020. How do we know this? Did Anthony Fauci reveal this to anyone? Did he admit it to anyone? We only know it from Freedom of Information Act. But the very first email that Anthony Fauci gets, 6.24, January 27th, 2020, is from his assistant sending an article to Anthony Fauci saying, this is gain-of-function research going on in Wuhan that we funded. Anybody see the exchange I had with Anthony Fauci? In the exchange, he's angry, and he's angrily saying and denying, unequivocally, we have never, ever funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. The first email he got about this, January 27th, 2020, his assistants informing him that, yes, we have. 
The research that was going on in Wuhan involves this Dr. Xi. It involves this guy named Ralph Barrick from UNC. And they call another guy named Peter Dazak, who runs EcoHealth. In, I call him because I'm a nice person, would never call anybody a name. I call him the bag man for the money. He's basically getting it and laundering it through China. But these three are involved in this research. So Barrick comes in to meet with Anthony Fauci on February 11th. Once again, we know through Freedom of Information Act. Years later, Fauci is asked about this in a lawsuit. It's called Missouri versus Biden. It's about free speech and the government, including Fauci, trying to suppress any speech that he disagrees with. They ask him, do you know Ralph Barrick? And he says, well, I just meet so many people. <laughs> and I'm not sure if I have met with him or not. He met with him one-on-one -on -one for an hour and a half on February 11, 2020. But this really smart guy who's smart enough to tell every one of you whether to be vaccinated or not, whether to wear a mask, whether to wear earmuffs, goggles, all this other crap, plexiglass, surround yourself by plexiglass. This guy's smart enough to do all of that to you, yet he can't remember whether he met with Barrick. So not only did he meet with him one-on-one -on -one at the height, the very beginning of all this pandemic, we also discovered a video, and so I, the internet is full of so many great people discovering things. They discover a video of him at a scientific conference standing at the podium, and he introduced Barrick, who comes forward, and then you can see the back of Fauci's head for an hour and a half listening to Barrick. He's still not sure he ever met him. They ask him whether he had met Dr. Xi, the bat scientist from Wuhan. Here's his response. He, 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 he's supposed to be one of the smartest guys in the world. His response is, I'm not very good with Asian names. <laughs> Seriously. There's no way he's telling the truth. He is being dishonest. He is dissembling. When the cover-up begins, it's in full force within days. It begins January 27th. By January 31st, there's a hysteria of emails going back and forth between all of these people. About 5.30 in the evening on January 31st, Jeremy Farrar sends an email to Anthony Fauci. Who is Jeremy Farrar? He's sort of the Anthony Fauci of England. He runs a, a group called Welcome Trust. It's the largest uh, giver of grants, private grants in the world maybe. He's involved with a lot of the same research that Anthony Fauci's been funding in China. He sends him an email. He's, his wife describes the time as he's got 17 phone calls in one evening. He says he bought a burner phone. He'd never had a burner phone before. I, I had to buy a burner phone. He says, I was frightened all of the time. But he won't describe exactly what he's frightened of. He says, my wife said, you need to talk to your brother. You need to give him some of this information in case something happens to you. Well, if you wrote that in your book, wouldn't you go on to explain who you were afraid of? He, he then goes on to say, I was never sure what I was really afraid of. He knows what he was afraid of. He was afraid of that in this cover-up or in the revealing that this happened in China, that something could happen to him, that he could be targeted by a foreign government. But very quickly on, even though they've all decided that they think the virus was manipulated, they decide to say the complete opposite thing in public. So he and another group of, of, of virologists are sending notes through the wee hours. It's 10.30 at night, and Christian Anderson, a famous virologist, is sending an email chain, and he says himself and three or four other famous virologists, we've all concluded by looking at the sequence and the structure of this virus that it's inconsistent with evolutionary expectations. What does that mean? It means it doesn't look like it came from nature. It doesn't look like it naturally evolved. Something's really, really suspicious. One of the main things is that furin cleavage site. They just don't see it in that family. There's a scientist, Stephen Quay, and he says, well, it hasn't been in that family of viruses uh, since before William the Conqueror came to England. We're talking 1066, a long time. They, they can look at the evolutionary history. It just pops up, and it pops up in perfect form without any sort of evolution or changes or mutations around it. It's very, very unusual, and they all agree privately that it's inconsistent on January 31st. They organize and they have a harried Zoom call the next day. Fauci's on it, all the rest of them. On that day, Fauci summarizes it. We only know this from Freedom of Information Act. We get it about a year later. He summarizes and says, 
we're very worried. We think the virus has been manipulated. We look at it, it's, not, it's inconsistent with evolutionary theory. We think it's been manipulated, but we're also very suspicious because we know that that lab does gain-of-function research, his own words. He describes an experiment, too, to show the kind of gain-of-function research they're doing, and the experiment he describes is one he funded. He didn't say that in the email, but he describes research he funded that was gain-of-function. He's essentially admitted that he's been lying. And what happens? Within three days, he calls all of these people back, and every one of them publicly say that they think it came from nature. In fact, Christian Anderson has the audacity. He's the one who says, inconsistent with evolutionary expectations. On the next chain of emails, three days later, he says, when I'm talking to people and convincing them of this, I like to say that it's consistent with evolutionary expectations. So in private, he's saying inconsistent. In public, he's now saying consistent. They're commissioned to write an article for Nature. It's called Proximal Origins. It becomes the most quoted article on all of this. It's the go-to article for all the nimdots that are in the media that'll believe what Anthony Fauci tells them. Anthony Fauci at the White House podium three weeks later says, and the reason we think this is true and the science is so compelling is because of this article called Proximal Origins. But he didn't tell anybody he wrote the article with the other guys. He's completely lying in public about everything that he does with a purpose. Why does he lie? Because he funded it. And ultimately, if he funded something that became the greatest pandemic in modern history, there'd be culpability. Wouldn't there be at least someone saying, hey, that was probably a bad idea. (laughs) There would be other people who lost loved ones saying, look, I lost my loved one. It was because you thought that the knowledge you would gain would be better or than the risks that were involved. In fact, he was asked that in 2010. This controversy has been going on for a decade or more. And his answer was that yes, a scientist could become infected and a pandemic could occur. But the risks are worth the knowledge. That to me is one of the worst judgment errors of any public health doctor ever. And just simply for the judgment error, he should be excoriated in history and forever remembered as a guy who allowed a worldwide pandemic to occur. More from our Reagan Forum with Senator Rand Paul after these messages. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Senator Rand Paul. On January 31st, 2020, at 12.30 in the morning or the wee hours of the next day, Anthony Fauci still sent an email. He sends an email to his assistant. He says, have your cell phone on. Read this paper. Be prepared. You will have tasks in the morning. At 3 in the morning, you can imagine Anthony Fauci laying awake thinking, holy, you know what? I may have funded a worldwide pandemic. He knew it from the very beginning. He's been covering it up from the very beginning. At three in the morning, he sends one more email. And this email goes to Bob Cadillac. And it's sort of innocuous on the surface of it, and I wasn't sure what it meant. It just said, hey, Bob, read this article. It's a pretty even even balanced article. It's an article basically saying, looks like it came from nature, nothing to see in the lab. Well, about a year later, I discovered who Bob Cadillac was. Bob Cadillac was in the Trump administration and he was uh, in charge of the safety committee that was supposed to review dangerous gain-of-function research. The only problem, he never saw this research. He only saw three research projects, and when I talked to him, after I got to know who he was, he says, I didn't have the power to go after them. I was only allowed to see what they sent me. Why didn't it go to him? Because Anthony Fauci made the decision that he would internally 
look at this stuff and make his own decision over whether it was gain of function, and he wasn't going to send it to some independent commission that might have had a Trump appointee on it. So he was reviewing these things internally. But once again, he made a terrible mistake. It was dangerous research, and it was gain of function research. But at me, he wags his finger and says, all my experts, up and down, 12 experts, dozens of experts have told me it's not gain-of-function research. So I've been asking for three years to see the deliberations. If it didn't go to the safety committee and you reviewed it internally and said it wasn't gain-of-function, let me see the deliberations. I can't get it. HHS is in charge of this whole thing. I've talked to the secretary of HHS. I've talked to them all till I'm blue in the face. I have held up every nomination I can possibly hold up to force the Democrats to sign letters. And even when I finally got the Democrat chairman to sign a letter, they won't give me the information. I get sent documents that are 250 pages, and I hold them up, and the entire thing has been redacted. Everything blanked out. These are not classified documents. So there were many scientists that were sort of in the middle. Did it come from the lab? Did it come from nature? And they weren't biased about it. The one thing that sort of tipped the balance for some of these people who were unsure, we discovered, once again, not volunteered by Dr. Barrick, not volunteered by Dr. Dazak, but that they and Dr. Shi in 2018 had applied for your money for a grant from DARPA. It's part of the Defense Department. They do scientific research, but they had applied for money to take a coronavirus and stick a furin cleavage site in it, to create a virus that looks a lot like what COVID-19 became. And the whole blueprint is spelled out in the grant. But this was hidden among thousands of grants, and it wasn't funded. And we only found out about it because a whistleblower, a Marine, a lieutenant colonel who I've met with, found this. But it wasn't even that easy. He saw some of the exchanges I had with Fauci, and he thought, I think I've heard of or think there's some research that was applied for, and he started looking for it. He went to the folder where it was supposed to be, and the folder was empty. There was another exchange I had with Fauci, and he goes back to the folder, and he found it. So whoever was hiding it became worried and stuck it back in the folder. This guy's a hero, but we would never know about it because they won't give me the documents, or if you get 10,000 documents, you can't find it. He found this. What a hero. Another whistleblower from the CIA, see each individual uh, intelligence agency was asked to give their assessment. The FBI concluded they thought it most likely came from the lab, not from animals. Department of Energy has a lot of scientists, they concluded that also. And we were told though the big agency that thinks that it came from nature is the CIA. So I met with the CIA, they didn't send one scientist, they sent like 15 handlers to me and I had to beg for it, the, you know, I'm supposed to be some kind of oversight. I was elected from an entire state. I got to beg to get these people to come to me. They come to me. They don't send me any scientists, and they just say, nothing to see here. We think it came from nature. A year goes by. We hear from a CIA whistleblower, and you know what he says? There was a scientific committee commissioned by the CIA to look and see where they thought this came from, and the vote was six to one. He knows what the vote was. Six to one saying they all believed, the scientists all believed it came from the lab. What happened? It went to their superiors, and their superiors overruled the scientific committee. So anybody ever heard the left saying, listen to the science. If you idiot conservatives would just follow the science and wear your damn mask, you know? <laughs> but they were overruled. What else do we know? We know that Anthony Fauci had many trips to the CIA, and they weren't being recorded in the visitor's log. He's being taken in there to see somebody. We also know that a CIA inspector general was called in because of complaints that analysts were looking at data, and if any of the data pointed towards the virus coming from the lab, they thought that that was damaging to our relations with China and internationally would be bad, and they also were suppressing this data because they believed Donald Trump believed the virus came from the lab, and it was out of something, you may have heard of this disease, Trump derangement syndrome? They were suppressing this. They're actually caught. There's an inspector general report about CIA agents looking at data and suppressing it because they thought it supported an argument Donald Trump was making. Nobody seemed to care about the truth. Nobody seemed to care about that a million Americans died. They still, there still has not been one bipartisan investigation of this. 
Republicans are doing it in the House and trying to do a good job, but really until the other side wakes up, we really can't get any laws changed. The evidence that came from the lab is overwhelming. The Chinese tested 80,000 animals. Not one animal had COVID. In 2002, 2003, they found the animal within three months. It was in civets. Not only was the virus in civets, the civet handlers also happened to have 20% of them had antibodies to the virus because it kept trying to infect people that were close to the animals. When they've tested the animals and the handlers of animals with COVID, it doesn't exist. And you might say, well, the Chinese are maybe lying to us. Well, they're really two big choices. It either came from the wet market, from animals, or it came from the lab. Chinese may not like either one of them, but I'm guessing they would like the wet market argument better than they would like the lab. And so they don't really have an incentive to, to lie about these things. But we have had people look at this. There just isn't evidence of this. One of the strongest bits of evidence is something that's a little bit complicated, but I think worth going into, is an idea of genetic diversity. An animal virus doesn't infect humans well, so it just keeps doing it over and over again. It gets lucky. So in this crowd, 20 people might get infected, and maybe one of you, it mutates enough to be able to infect other humans. But it just tries this over and over again. So there's a lot of different genetic lineages by people who get infections. With COVID-19, there was a single genetic lineage. What does a single genetic lineage mean? It came from one place. All of the evidence seems to point towards this coming from a single source, from a lab. And this evidence has gone up and was being suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. But there's a great deal of evidence. And now the, I think the scientific community's sort of 50-50 on this, if not leaning towards this. But what was Anthony Fauci doing this entire time? He produces a paper called Proximal Origins, five scientists, they all say it's inconsistent with you know, um, coming from a lab. It's consistent with you know, coming from nature. Every one of them in private are sending emails at the same time, still saying they believe that it good chance that it came from, from the lab. The same period of time, they got in a hurry, and they even before this was being published, they wanted to get something in Lancet, another prestigious journal. So they uh, had an organization of like 20 different scientists who wrote a letter, and they all signed it, and they said, and this is the first time that I think this has ever been printed in a scientific journal. They said the people who believe it came from the lab are conspiracy theorists. Really? Conspiracy theorists? Are, that's a, a term in a scientific article? But guess who signed the letter? Guess who organized the signing of the letter? Peter Dazak. You think he might have a conflict of interest since he made millions of dollars that we gave him that he shared with the Chinese lab? He's been working with them for a decade. Millions of dollars ran through his organization to them, and he writes a letter, and he never reveals his monetary conflict of interest, which is a huge problem for these journals. So we have emails between him and Ralph Barrick. So his partners are Barrick, Dayzak, and she, And we have him saying to Ralph Barrick, probably you shouldn't sign on this. We want to have the appearance of independence. Lies, lies, lies from the very beginning, a cover-up. And when you tell people this, people on the left will say, you crazy conservatives and all your conspiracies and stuff. And they imagine somehow that a conspiracy has to be a bunch of people like rubbing their hands together and they're all in league together. But I think George Carlin put it the best. He's pretty good at describing a lot of things. George Carlin said, that the only thing really necessary, you don't really need a conspiracy, what you need is a convergence of interests. Think about it. You could have 200 people in our government all covering up the origins of funding of the Wuhan lab because it's all in their self-interest. If they know and believe that there's a very good chance that the virus came from a lab that they funded, you think you want anybody to know about this. So as I search through all these records, I'm getting these emails. DITRA is another defense agency, kind of like Department, Defense Threat Association, that does research. So I get their emails, and they're, they're discussing me in their emails, which is great. You get to re read what's happening behind closed doors in the deep state, which does exist. So they're discussing me, and they're saying it's just from his individual office, and he's not a chairman of the committee, and so we can ignore it. 
They're also discussing EcoHealth Alliance, this Peter Dayzak group that's been funneling all this money to China, and they say, well, we have found that their mission statement of what they applied for the money, that they've exceeded their mission statement, which is a nice way of saying they were doing stuff they didn't say they were going to do. The response from them, this is from one of their superiors, they said, I read that, and you know, it could be kind of worrisome, but let's take that out. You know, they FOIA all our stuff. We don't want anybody to read that. This is what's going on. That is what the deep state is, is all these people that are there generation after generation, and there's not enough sunlight. There, there's got to be some transparency in this, and we are struggling to get it. Even on the vaccine front, for goodness sakes, shouldn't we know the people on the vaccine approval committee whether they get money from Big Pharma? For goodness sakes, should we not at least know that? In committee, in one of the many exchanges with him, I said, I want to know if anyone on the vaccine committees gets royalties. And Anthony Fauci looks me at the eye, stares me down, and says, the law doesn't require us to do so, and therefore we won't. In other words, it's none of your business. None of my business, none of your business to know this. But think about it. Think if you're on the local city council in Ventura County or in LA or whatever, and you own a book company, and they're going to buy books from a book company, but you don't tell anybody you own the book company that's put the bid in. How would that fly? People have gone to jail for things like that. You have to reveal your if you have a conflict of interest. So I proposed a bill, and my bill still don't have a Democrat on it. It's just simply to say they have to reveal this. You have to know if someone's getting royalties from Pfizer and they're voting on whether or not you should have to take a Pfizer vaccine, shouldn't we know that? And the mandates. I don't think it was ever a good idea. Somebody asked me if it was a, a much deadlier than COVID, should we mandate it? No, people are pretty smart, actually. People make wise decisions. This crowd may not be representative, but over 65, <laughs> I'll preface it with that, over age 65, 98% of people got at least one vaccine or two vaccines. Most people just chose to take it. They read older people were dying, people chose to take it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It was an age-based uh, sort of association with disease. But if you look and find out how many people are vaccinating their five-year-olds, it's like 3%. People know how things work. They read the news. Older people were dying. Kids were not dying. But then the government just mandates across the board that everybody do the same thing. One size fits all. I've been fighting this every day. I'm still fighting in the Senate. For the first time, though, we did repeal the military mandate. No more soldiers have to do this. There's nothing more gratifying than eating at a restaurant in Bowling Green or eating in a restaurant in DC and having a guy come up to me or a woman and say, I've been in for 16 years and I was gonna have to leave. I can't tell you how many times people, people come up to me on planes. People are all the time thanking me that we finally got rid of this mandate. It's the first time we ever had, so there have been some successes. And there never was an argument for this. None of their studies ever included whether you've been infected. You know, the, the, de the one study we did have was a sort of an un unplanned study. Was with, it was one ship with 1,100 people on it, and one person did die on the ship early on. So we knew early on that it wasn't that dangerous for young people. But we also knew early on the vaccine didn't stop transmission. There is still some evidence that it may have slowed down either death or hospitalization in high-risk categories. So when they got to whether you should take a booster, it went before the committees. And you know what the committee said? People don't know this. The committee said it should be recommended for those 65 and older to take a booster. Do you know what the conclusion of the Biden administration was? Down to six months, your, ch your children from six months age of on should take three vaccines. There is no science behind that. And I once again, I challenged Fauci on this, and I said, does it reduce transmission? No. Does it reduce hospitalization or death for children? No. Oh, he didn't say no. He says we don't have enough data. And I said, the reason you don't have enough data is because no children are going to the hospital or dying from this. No healthy children are going to the hospital and dying from this. And it's absolutely true. It's not even partly true. The whole country of Germany released that not one healthy child died under age 18. Now, kids did die. There were a few hundred died, maybe uh, between 150 and 200 in our country, of 300 million. And these are sad, but they died. They were very, very sick kids from other things. They didn't die from COVID necessarily. They died kind of with COVID from another disease. But we've been lied to.
We've been lied to repeatedly, and it's one size fits all. Everybody should just do as you're told. The reason I wrote this book isn't just about putting Anthony Fauci in jail, though I won't complain if that's a result. Really, the reason I wrote this book is about trying to keep this from happening again. Robert Redfield was head of the CDC under, under Trump. He believes that a, a, another virus is coming within the next decade, that it could kill between five and 50%. This virus killed a million people in our country and that's 0.3%. I was talking to someone today and I said, can you imagine what happens to Los Angeles you know, if you have 50% of the people die? And he said, well, I can imagine what it's like with hardly anybody, what we've got now is a mess. But can you imagine, he said, I think if 20% of the people died, we'd all be in internal strife and war, and the, you know, would there be enough people to put chlorine in the water? Would there be sewage being drained? Would any of the jobs that are necessary? The only thing we can really compare this with is the 14th century and the Black Plague, and a third of Europe dies, and Europe went into chaos for a couple of hundred years, roving bands of people warring. Think Mad Max. You know, when I think of a, a virus coming to this country, I think uh, I'm a Planet of the Apes aficionado of the Charlton Heston. They did it. They finally did it. They blew up the world. That's what people worried about with nuclear weapons. This is like the same degree of worry that you have with nuclear weapons. Kevin Esfeldt is an MIT scientist. He does CRISPR technologies. He's a very, very smart guy. He's not in it for politics. I don't know what his politics are, but he says this kind of research risks, it's a gamble that civilization shouldn't take. That's a, that's a big statement. So never again should we let them do this. We've got to control the research. I have legislation to set up an independent committee that can look at all research, classified or unclassified, and judge whether or not it should be, if it's uh, dangerous enough that it should be performed or not. Still no Democrat on board, but I'm still trying. But never again should we let them lock us down. Never again should we be put into this situation. <laughs> never again should we allow them to come into our schools. Never again should we let them set one foot in our churches. <laughs> Liberty requires eternal vigilance. I'm going to keep fighting with every breath I have. I appreciate your support, and I hope you will fight alongside me. Thank you very much. So we have a few moments before our time concludes with questions. I have a whole stack of audience questions, uh, so we'll move swiftly through these in the time allowed. Senator Paul, you, you mentioned members of the military and how people come up to you. Uh, one question is, what is being done to reinstate all military members who were forced out of military duty um, because they refused to get the COVID vaccine? Uh, without question, they should all be reinstated with back pay. And I don't like just to be partisan, but if Republicans were in control, it would happen. The Democrats oppose happening it. They don't want to tell them what to do. Uh, there were, it's not just military, firemen, policemen, nurses, doctors, I mean, all fired without any science. Senator, you're a doctor, of course. The Hippocratic Oath, has it been forgotten, ignored, or is it no longer applicable in the COVID era? I think when you believe in collectivism and you believe and allow your rights and your medical decisions to be made by others and by the government, the Hippocratic Oath means nothing. I mean, it only means something if you make your own medical decisions, if you and your doctor make these decisions. And it's amazing to me the hypocrisy and that they can get away with it. Think if there was one honest person in the mainstream media to say, oh, well, you believe in a woman's right to choose. Well, what about everybody's right to choose whether they want a vaccine or not? Oh, no. So, but the Hippocratic Oath is being ignored. And I think it's because we've allowed ourselves to become collectivized instead of allowing individual decisions. Zooming out, Senator, what are you planning to do to protect our border and uncover the threats and corruption from China? What I will do is I will not vote for one red cent for another country before we fix our building. So, so perhaps a, a follow-up to that, 
uh, given the latest state of play uh, of the war in Ukraine and of Israel's response to the October 7th Hamas attack, what is your position on Ukraine aid and aid to Israel? Okay. I've supported aid to Israel if it's offset by cutting spending somewhere else. And the first thing Speaker Johnson did when he came in was he passed $14 billion uh, offset by removing money from the IRS. If I have the choice of Israel or the IRS, I'm going to stick with Israel. And then on Ukraine? Uh... Well, on Ukraine, the thing is, is nobody's even offering to pay for it by taking it from somewhere else. But even if they were, we were up to, this will be like $170 billion. Their gross domestic product's about $110 billion. We've given them more than a year of their economy entire makes. This doesn't mean I'm not sympathetic. But if, if our argument is that we are going to be involved wherever human rights or wherever there's been an aggressor, you know, there's arguments that uh, Russia itself killed Navalny. There's arguments that China killed General Yusin as, as well as thousands of people, including the Uyghurs and every other minority in China. There's all kinds of evidence. Israel, they've tortured teenagers. There are people that go missing. Syria. So, I mean, if that's our argument, and they're good arguments that these are valid, you know, we should be supportive of these people, but if we're going to fund all of them, it's not only that we don't have the money to do it, we do the opposite. Egypt gets $3 billion a year, and they have a great deal of human rights violations in Egypt. And so we just can't, we can't give away money we don't have. If you have to borrow it to give it to another country, I think it makes no financial or fiscal sense. So pulling that thread even further, Senator, you're a leader on the national debt, on addressing it. We are $34 trillion in debt. What are you and other leaders on Capitol Hill doing to address that? The first thing you have to do, and this is something I have had a, a, a bit of a quibble or more than that with Donald Trump on, is you have to look at entitlements. You know, he spent 20-some-odd million attacking DeSantis for saying, oh, DeSantis is going to cut Social Security. I have said since I was first elected, I don't want to cut your Social Security, but you're going to have to wait longer to get it. So am I. There's not enough money. Two-thirds of our spending is entitlements. That's Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and food stamps. That's two-thirds of spending. It's about $4 trillion a year. The remaining $1.5 trillion to $2 trillion is the budget we vote on. We don't vote on the $4 trillion. It's going up at 5 or 6%. If you don't do something to restrain the growth of entitlements, you can never balance the budget, and we're never going to get out from under this, this debt problem that we have. So Republicans should quit attacking Republicans who think we should reform entitlements, and we need to move forward with it. And so this is something that if we, you know, the people who say, oh, I'm going to look, you know, when, let's say the debt deal, McCarthy did the debt deal. And the reason why many of our conservatives said it didn't make any, it wasn't any good at all is entitlements were off. They were off the table. That's two-thirds of spending. And then what you have remaining is military and non-military. That's a third. So half of a third is a six is military. It was taken off the table and given a 3% increase. So entitlements went up 5 to 6%, two-thirds of spending. One-sixth of spending is the military going up 3%. We're left with one-sixth of spending. And McCarthy did make a good point on this. He said, you expect me to balance the budget by controlling the spending on one-sixth of all spending. It was, a, it was a reasonable point. I still think it was a terrible deal because they didn't extend it to everything else. What we have to do is something. I do this experiment all the time in the office. The, you know, we have family members who have Alzheimer's, and I have a great deal of sympathy. I remember Ronald Reagan's Alzheimer's. They wear the purple rin, uh, ribbons and they come to my office, and this is the discussion I have every year, and with many other diseases that I have a great deal of sympathy. All right, you got $100 million last year for Alzheimer's research. Let's use that number. I said, we're short of money. We have a $34 trillion debt. Interest payments are $800 billion. And if we all did 95% of what we spent last year on every program, we could balance the budget and over about a five-year period. That would mean instead of 100 million, you get 95 million. Every one of these people whose mothers and fathers and grandfathers all have Alzheimer's, they look at me and they're emotionally involved and they nod their head and say, okay, if everybody's doing it. In Washington, that never happens. In Washington, everything's going up and you don't like people with Alzheimer's or diabetes or heart or cancer if you don't give 10% more every year. But giving 10% more of something you don't have isn't compassion, it's making us weaker and weaker. So we just gotta be strong enough to stand up. And it doesn't mean I want anybody to have less Medicare or less Social Security. It's just we're out of money and we're living longer and you've gotta raise the age gradually over about a 20 year period. 
Second to last question. As regular people who love our country, how do we let our legislators know we want our country back? We live in California, what can we do? Never, ever let Gavin Newsom anywhere near the White House. I think we're united on that one. Great, great. Well, Adam Schiff uh, as well. Um, <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just relaying what I'm hearing. It'd be a competition to who's worst between those two. But I mean, more broadly, there are, what, 30 plus million people here in California? Um, uh, what, what, what you know, you the thing is, if it were easy, you'd have already have done it. But my advice as an outsider, even though you didn't ask me, somebody asked me this, I think that, uh, well, diversity for diversity's sake is, is not a great idea. The idea that we are uh, people from different places, we need more people from different places to be in the party, so we do need a more diverse party. And on issues, I wouldn't change, I'm for strict uh, policy of no illegal immigration, but I think some of the best Americans just got here. We have to be able to say that and be encouraging to have first generation immigrants in our party. Asian, Korean, Vietnamese, Chinese, Hispanic, they need to be in our party. And we have to be a bigger party. And some people want less legal immigration. I actually want more legal immigration. Legal, lawful, I'd have zero illegal immigration. But you have to be more welcoming to people. And I'm not saying you're not, but we have to do something to become a bigger party. And some of that is attitude. I think just simply by saying some of the best Americans just got here, and I, I know I have many of my good friends are Indian American physicians in my town. We have people from Bosnia in my town. All good, hardworking people and compliment the work that people do and not assume that everybody's a non-worker, everybody's here to steal from the welfare system. But none of that means I'd let anybody in illegally. I'd put every one of them back on the other side of the border. Every one of them. Last question. What does Ronald Reagan mean to you today? All right, I met Ronald Reagan uh, one time to have a picture in uh, 1978. I was 15 and I was wearing a rust-colored corduroy suit. <laughs> I wish I could take that moment back and have a sort of a reasonable suit on when I have a picture, but what I appreciate about Ronald Reagan, I think, is something not everybody does, and that is uh, the arms negotiations with Russia because it was important. And sometimes we as Republicans are people, oh, we don't believe in negotiation, let's just, you know, defeat those people militarily, whatever. No, it was important, the, the arms negotiation. I had the privilege of having a longer conversation actually with Gorbachev. I went to Russia in 2018. I spent an hour and a half with Gorbachev. And the negotiations were an amazing thing. And I think we, we need more of the understanding that even when we're at odds with people, we should talk to them. We're at odds with China. I'm mad about the virus, don't get me started. But, and I wouldn't give them any money, but I wouldn't cut off relations, and I wouldn't say no more business with China. We, we can't, if we do that, we're more likely to, to war. I have problems with Saudi Arabia, frankly, but I don't want to conquer Saudi Arabia, but I had trouble with them killing and butchering a, a journalist, you know? I mean, all these countries, a lot of them have problems, but the realistic aspect of it is we have to continue to have discussions. Soviet Union was a terrible totalitarian uh, regime, and yet Ronald Reagan chose to talk to them because he feared nuclear war, and I don't think enough people appreciate Ronald Reagan for his uh, understanding of how terrible nuclear war would be. Ladies and gentlemen, Senator Rand Paul. Signed copies of Deception can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening. God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to a Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores. 
and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast, featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.